0: This episode of To The Point is sponsored by Tarsus. Tarsus Pharmaceuticals applies proven science and new technology to revolutionize treatment for patients, starting with eye care. Tarsus is advancing its pipeline to address several diseases with high unmet need across a range of therapeutic categories, including eye care, dermatology, and infectious disease prevention. Tarsus is proud to announce that XDEMV Lotolanor Ophthalmic Solution 0.25% is now available to prescribe.
1: Welcome to PupilPod, where we use clinical cases to guide discussions on board review topics. I'm your host, Sylla Ball, and my guest today is Dr. Dan Choi. Dr. Choi is a cornea and refractive surgeon in Honolulu, Hawaii. Dr. Choi, thank you again for joining me today.
2: Thanks so much for having me and accommodating this large
1: time difference. <laughs> yes, I keep saying 7 p.m., but really that's like 1 p.m. for you.
2: caught me my lunch break here. It's perfect.
1: <laughs> well, thank you for taking your time to do this. Let's jump right into it. So you have a 65-year-old woman with blurry vision that is worse in the morning and a recent diagnosis of Fuchs endothelial dystrophy. She comes in for a second opinion about corneal transplantation. She would like to know more about her options and has found some differences in the corneal transplants to be very confusing. Dr. Choi, let's start with full thickness transplantation or penetrating keratoplasty. What are the overall steps and indications for a PK?
2: Thanks so much. So I I appreciate this podcast because I'm going to definitely have my patients listen to this podcast in the future as a nice little summary of all the different components of corneal transplantation. Just to start off, uh, PKP or penetrating keratoplasty is a surgery in which we remove all the layers of the cornea and suture in a donated cornea from a cadaver eye. The reasons why we may perform a PKP is if there's some sort of pathology that involves all layers of the cornea. Most commonly in my practice, this is patients with a perforated corneal ulcer, keratoconus that involves uh, also the decimates, usually patients that have acute high drops, uh, patients that have severe steepening and scarring and that aren't as amenable for just a lamellar keratoplasty. Just to kind of review for our listeners, the different steps of PKP. Initially, when you do a PKP, one of your first steps is to measure out the size of the graft, and then uh, you kind of want to balance the size of the graft in terms of how large you want to make it. Between a balance of having a larger graft actually helps reduce the amount of astigmatism, but at the same time, if you make the graft too large and bring the graft closer to to the limbal vessels, you're at a high risk for rejection, and also you're narrowing the, the angle, so you're increasing the risk of secondary uh, angle closure glaucoma. Um, as far as the surgery, after you measure the size, the appropriate size graft, um, you would then take your, your donor, donor corneal button and usually punch out an oversized graft, about a quarter to uh, 2.5 millimeters in size, and then you'd use a, tr- a vacuum tree find on your, on your recipient patient um, turn the vacuum tree find down, usually like 80% depth, and then puncture through the cornea the rest of the way with another uh, sharp instrument and use scissors to remove the, the host cornea, and then you just suture on your donor cornea button.
1: This is a perfect episode for me right now because I actually have my first urgent PK as a fellow tomorrow, so I'll, I'll have to like really think hard about the different steps and all the different equipment that I need. But moving forward kind of in the time course of a penetrating keratoplasty, how do you decide when and which sutures to remove once the patient has undergone some level of healing?
2: So the timing of the suture removal is really important in terms of making sure there's good integrity at the, the, um, the graft host junction. So usually at three months is when I'll start taking out the sutures. This is all guided by your topography. The sutures will cause a steepening in that access. So if you find that there's this particular steep access, you'll remove sutures in that axis. Uh, another good rule is try not to remove sequential sutures. Let's say it's early on after corneal transplant, you, you remove a few in a row and you actually have a dehiscence of the wound in the area, it can be a problem. So I try not to uh, take out um, sutures that are uh, next to one another. The overall process usually is done over several months. So after that first three-month visit where I take a couple sutures out, I'll continue to take sutures out every one or two months. And then I actually don't take out every suture. It's really based off of the patient's final corneal topography and astigmatism. So let's say they have four sutures left where they're actually seeing great, uh, I'll leave those sutures in um, for an indefinite period of time. And then uh, specifically for the technique for how I remove sutures, I use beta, I just do it in the clinic. I put in a and drop. Lid speculum. Use a thirty gauge needle to cut open the cut the suture and just a jeweler's forceps to remove it. I and I do keep the patients on antibiotics for about three days after the procedure is finished.
1: And what are some of the postoperative complications of PKs, and how do we kind of manage them in clinic?
2: So for all corneal transplants, I I like to think of the complications uh, in terms of timing. So complications can be either related early on, directly related to the procedure and the different steps. So our early complication might involve primary graft failure. So by definition, this is when you sutured on the PK and you waited generally up to three months and the cornea is still not clearing. And we usually attribute this primary graft failure to complications during the surgery, such as perhaps the endothelium was in contact with the iris for too long or any other intraocular uh, intraocular lens or glaucoma tube. Or it could be an issue with the procurement of the tissue, like something happened during the transfer of the tissue. Uh, For me, that's a big concern because I get my tissue shipped in from uh, usually from Washington and California. So I really want to make sure that the the freight shipments and everything went okay. Uh, Other complications that can happen early on are really related to your suturing. So patients can get wound leaks, uh, they can have loose sutures. Um, Another variable uh, usually related to suturing and how well you oppose the the graft-host junction is uh, delayed epithelial healing. If there's a big gap for the epithelial cells to migrate from the limbus onto the donor cornea, you might get a patient with a persistent epithelial defect. Other things that could contribute with that is if you have somebody that has exposure issues, is a chronic eye rubber, um, especially like your keratoconic patients. If you do a PK, sometimes they'll have delayed healing because the same habitual habits that led to all the ectasia is also denuding the epithelium. Um, for those patients, you want to consider putting in, a, for patients with delayed healing, you want to consider putting in a bandaged contact lens, patching them, or even using an amniotic membrane if it's necessary. The most feared immediate post-operative calification would be endophthalmitis. Just like every other eye surgery that we do, the, most, uh, the biggest concern is getting infection inside the eye. To prevent endophthalmitis, uh, it's really a process of making sure the whole process of pro- procurement is stable and that any preparation that you do in the OR is, st- is, is sterile, not stable, sterile. Um, just as a precautionary measure, I'd say that every corneal surgeon will send their donor rim for culture, just in case something goes back and then there is an infection, you can identify the source of the infection. Uh, so outside of the immediate complication risk, some of the long-term complication risks that we're looking at are mainly to do with episodes of rejection. So rejection, uh, just as an overview, rejection most commonly occurs after the first year of transplantation. We see this because after a year, you're usually tapering these patients off of steroids. Some patients will stay, stay on steroids uh, indefinitely once a daily, but some surgeons Uh, depending on the patient's response to steroids in terms of, in terms of intraocular pressure or their ability to comply with the drops might take them off steroids. And that's when you usually see more rejection episodes. Uh, Graph rejection is categorized uh, usually by the anatomical location. So graph rejection can be categorized as epithelial rejection. So it's at the epithelial layer. You'll usually see like an epithelial ridge and you'll see some adjacent limbal vessels that are injected. This really represents a a vast majority of rejection episodes, showing about 2% in the literature. And honestly, I don't think I've seen an epithelial rejection episode before. The next category would be a subepithelial rejection, uh, which looks like a bad case of EKC, meaning you'll see subepithelial infiltrates scattered throughout the cornea. So I think that's a really good um, tidbit for any fellows or residents that are covering call. You see a patient that has a history of PKP, and they come in, and you think it's just EKC. Uh, The treatment's similar in terms of using steroids, but you would want to be a little bit more aggressive for these patients because you're trying to make sure that the rejection episode doesn't continue and and damage the endothelium at the end of the day. Other categories of uh, rejection include stromal rejection. These patients present with stromal infiltrates. And then the final category of rejection is endothelial rejection. This represents about 50% of the rejection episodes. And this is the one that has the the worst consequences because it's going to, cause you lose the loss of endothelial cells. On exam, you'll see um, precipitates on the endothelium. We call it like a codose line. And then you'll see stromal thickening because there's decreased endothelial function. And I think for uh, just to review how we can manage these complications, um, so to try to manage these episodes of rejection, it's all about immunosuppression. So these patients are going through rejection because the body recognize the antigens in the, in the donated cornea and I try to fight it off as a foreign substance. So you're really trying to decrease the immune response by you know, generally giving steroids. Uh, what I was in academics as a resident fellow, our protocol would be get these patients on IV cellulimedrol or oral steroids. Uh, in clinical practice uh, in Hawaii, I generally just give a subtenance catalog. I think it's a little bit cleaner in terms of not having to worry about some of the systemic side effects that you that these patients can experience. And then also, I'll increase their topical steroids. Um, so that covers most of the complications. I guess the other long-term complication patients can have is late graft failure, or basically the graft kind of runs out of, runs out of time. Um, so if you think of a patient that has keratoconus and gets a PKP in their 20s, I generally say that they'll probably need two grafts in their lifetime. The graft will last 25, 30 years if it's well, well um, if a have patient's compliant, have, has a good Uh, follow up and doesn't have any other endocular uh, issues. Um, So late graft failure is basically over the lifetime of the graft, then the endothelial cells will will die off and a new graft may be needed. Um, Of interest for these patients that have had PKPs and they have late graft failure, I'll usually uh, recommend doing an endothelial graft underneath their PKP because you're reintroducing less antigens, you're reintroducing uh, less foreign corneal tissue. And these patients do really well with uh, endothelial graft under their PKP.
1: Okay. So talking about endothelial grafts and going back to our patient a little bit who has endothelial dystrophy, what are some of the surgical options for her?
2: All right. So for this patient so and all patients with endothelial disease only, which Fuchs is just endothelial disease, I would really just offer an endothelial transplant. The reason why I'd focus on an endothelial transplant and not a full thickness BKP is because you really don't need the donated stroma and epithelial cells. Those are things that will just um, create more problems for the patient. So within endothelial transplants, her two options would be either a DSEC, which is uh, where you take a donated cornea posterior stroma, decimates in endothelial cells, or a DMac. Uh, which is just the decimase membrane and endothelial cells from the, from the donor. So just as a little overview, before 2003, so all the way up until like the early 2000s, almost every graph that we did was a full thickness penetrating keratoplasty. And um, that was mainly because there weren't as many good techniques to just harvest the, the endothelium. But in 2003, the DSEC w- was introduced um, and became a, a popular technique. And then actually later in 2006 DMEC was introduced, but didn't get really full adoption probably for another decade. So with the introduction of endothelial transplants, we actually do a lot more endothelial grafts nowadays than PKP. We actually do twice as many endothelial transplants as we do full thickness grafts in the United States. And actually the number of DMECs that we do compared to DSECs has risen and they're almost about the same. So over the past decade, there's more and more uh, surgeons that have transitioned or gotten more accustomed to DMEC. Just as a review, again, we mentioned that we do endothelial transplants for patients with endothelial disease. Besides Fuchs, this would be a patient that might have bolus keratopathy secondary to intraocular surgery, so patients that have had dense cataracts, um, glaucoma or retinal surgeries in combination with a cataract surgery as well. Um, patients with viral endothelial disease, such as uh, herpetic endotheliitis. these patients get recurrent episodes. They lose too, much, too many endothelial cells. And even when they're not active with their infection, they might have corneal edema. Other less common conditions would be PPMD or posterior polymorphous corneal dystrophy, uh, CHED or congenital uh, hereditary endothelial dystrophy. And then ICE syndrome would be other other, uh, etiologies of needing an endothelial transplant. And then, again, just to kind of uh, review, and as I mentioned earlier, we always prefer um endothelial transplants over pkp because of the less tissue involved and this means that we don't need to cut through the entire eye and have a full thickness wound so it helps protect the integrity of the eye Uh, that equates to less astigmatism faster visual visual rehabilitation much lower rejection episodes compared to pkp and better long-term survival Um, just as like a real world example for this patient let's say this is like the year 2003 my options are either dsec or pkp I explained to her if I did a PKP, we'd work for a year to get sutures out for best vision. But even with that, she might have some irregular astigmatism, might need a scleral contact lens for the best vision. Whereas if we did a a DSEC at that time, uh, I expect her vision to clear out within a few weeks. Nowadays, for a patient like her, I tell them um, I would really much prefer doing a DMEC over a DSEC. Visual acuity is on average aligned better with a DMEC compared to a DSEC. Graph rejection is better. There's about a one percent rejection rate with the DMEC after two years, about ten percent with the DSEC. Um, So I really push for DMEC for these patients. And she, this this case example is a common patient I get. Uh, I'm one of the younger corneal surgeons on the island, and I'm the I I've do I've done the most DMEC on the island, so it's become one of the things I get patients referred for. And a lot of patients do their research and they want to know what's the difference between DSEC and DMEC. and these these are kind of statistics I go through with them. Just as an overview of the steps of endothelial transplants, both surgeries, what you're ultimately doing, you're scoring and removing the host decimase membrane. You usually use uh, like a reverse Sinsky, so like a up, upward facing hook to kind of score the decimates and then you strip it away. And then uh, the two the two surgeries mainly differ about how you introduce new donated grafts into the eye. So in a DSEC, um, you're inserting the corneal lenticle, like that posterior stroma decimase and endothelium that you have donated, uh, usually through a four millimeter incision. So you have to use a, a slightly larger wound compared to a DMAC. And there's a, w- a variety of ways that people insert uh, DSEC tissue. Um, there's actually a technique where you could use just a sheet slide, put some OVD, and you actually just push the lenticule in. Uh, a common way that I do it is actually using a specialized irrigating and inserting device called the endoserter. It's called a Tan endosurter. Um, I think it was the, the famous uh, surgeon in Singapore, Dr. Tan, that came up with it, but basically allows you to irrigate, and maintain the anterior chamber, and then you can shoot in the, the desec tissue without direct, as much direct manipulation. Once you have a desect de-sec tissue in the eye, um, the desec tissue generally orients very well, and it's very easy to manipulate because there's still posterior stroma. So it has a nice rigidity to it. So it usually unfolds quite well. And you can actually usually just tap on the surface of the eye to get it centered. And if that doesn't work, you can actually go in and grab an edge of the of the lenticle with your reverse Sinsky to manually position it. I try not to do that, but it, it's always an option to get things in, into play. So it, positioning and getting a DSEC centered is usually not an issue. It's usually much more it's much easier from a technical standpoint. In a DMEC, on the other hand, and why it took some time for adoption, the DMEC tissue is just the just just the decemes membrane and the endothelial cells. So you're working with a much smaller amount of tissue and the tissue is very fragile and friable and it doesn't like to be touched and you generally just don't touch it. Um, as a result of having such a friable tissue, generally we use DMeC tissue from older patients because their decimates memories are thick are thicker, so it's a little bit easier to manipulate. Um, for these patients, the DMeC the tissue is generally um, stripped and then floated in BSS, and they're usually drawn up into some sort of injection device. Um, some people will use a modified uh, IOL cartridge The common thing to use now and what's commercially available through Corneogen, I don't have any financial disclosures, is a pre-loaded system. So it's actually a guter cannula. So it's actually this glass tube that has a tip that fits inside a 2.4 millimeter wound. And the tissue is pre-stripped, it's pre-punched and pre-stamped. So everything's like loaded up in this little tube and you connect that to a a one or three cc uh, BSS syringe. And then you go through a 2.4 millimeter wound and you just shoot that into the eye. And it's really, really straightforward. And I think it's a great way for patients to, I'm sorry, for surgeons to transition into DMEC. I'm sure a lot of people that are in academics or in training, you guys are probably still learning to strip and prep the tissue yourself. But uh, out in private practice, someone else usually takes care of that for you, either your local eye bank or one of these larger commercial entities. Getting back to the DMAC technique, DMAC is really challenging from a technical standpoint of centering it because you have this tissue that's rolled up on itself. It doesn't want to unfold on its own because that's just not the natural configuration of that thin tissue, and uh, you can't go in there with a Cincy hook and drag it into place. So again, this part would be like a really long lecture, and it's a great thing to attend at AR Asterisk if they ever have a wet lab for DMAC. Um, it's, I think that's one of the most helpful things I did right after training. I actually took a course, the first AO after training to sharpen my DMEC skills. Um, but long story short with DMAC, you try to flatten the AC as much as possible. So then there's less space for the, for the DMEC tissue to stay in a tight scroll configuration. You can actually use the iris to kind of flatten out the DMEC tissue. And then, um, then you use a series of taps and, uh, pressure gradients by kind of, uh, by essentially um, flattening the AC to a further extent to try to flatten the DMEC and get it to open up and then you eventually put in a, a gas bubble. For both of these uh, transplanted tissues, the tissue is going to be marked to help you get oriented, to make sure your graft is not upside down. So usually the traditional mark is like an S mark, some iBanks will put an F mark, There's some eye banks that will put a peripheral notch to help you orient. I guess some say it's like a shark fin notch or it's a certain orientation to it. I think that would just be confusing to me. I think the letters a little bit easier to read. Um, At the end of both cases, your ultimate goal is to have a graph adherent to the recipient corneal stroma. And in order to do that, you have to put some sort of tamponade. So for DSEC, traditionally put in air and the air bubble will float that DSEC tissue into place. For a since that DMAC tissue is more fragile and more likely to unscroll and kind of fall off and dislocate, we generally put in 20% SF6 because 20% SF6 uh, is non-expansile and usually stays in the eye for four to seven days. Um, And then over time, the goal would be the graft is in place, the endothelial cells wake up and they start, you know, naturally uh, adhering themselves to the host uh, corneal stroma, and then you have a patient that could see well. So that's kind of a, it's kind of a loose review
0: of both surgeries there. This episode of To The Point is sponsored by Tarsus. Tarsus Pharmaceuticals applies proven science and new technology to revolutionize treatment for patients, starting with eye care. Tarsus is advancing its pipeline to address several diseases with high unmet need across a range of therapeutic categories, including eye care, dermatology, and infectious disease prevention. Tarsus is proud to announce that X-DEMV Lodalanor Ophthalmic Solution 0.25% is now available to prescribe.
1: No, it's extremely helpful. Even the part about shallowing the AC I think is good to know as a younger surgeon um, trying to figure out what works and how to best get the graft to stick. So... I know that we prefer EKs, obviously, to PKs in any situation where the cornea would be amenable to that, but what are some of the complications that are associated with endothelial keratoplasty?
2: Yeah, definitely. So for complication of endothelial keratoplasty, really majority of the complications you'll, you'll face are related to the technical challenges of it. With both techniques, you're trying to um, get a graft to be centered. So for DSEC, uh, you might have difficulty if the patient has any kind of abnormal anterior chamber pathology, like there's a glaucoma tube, um, or they have like an ACI well, it can become more difficult to get that graft to be centered. And then um, for DMAC, the same type of challenges exist where centration, and then for DMAC, another uh, more common concern is graft dislocation. So there's oftentimes series of um, or publications where, pe- they, uh, where surgeons will follow their series of dislocation rate over time, and generally the first fifty cases aren't the best. There's a lot of dislocation because people have a hard time unfolding the graft, and then uh, they have a harder time recognizing if there is a small a small uh, gap in the early parts of the surgery, or if it's uh, completely attached at the end. For patients that have um, graft dislocation, you really your real option is just to rebubble them. Um, this could either be done in the clinic or you could bring them back to the operating room. Things that could help you in terms of diagnosing small detachments. If you have access to your answer at Segment OCT, that's a great way to help visualize things. And then um, just kind of some rules of thumb for DMEC dislocations, which are more common. If you have a small peripheral dislocation, I generally leave that alone. Over time, the endothelial cells will start pumping and that will close down. Uh, if you have a large central dislocation, then that's something you generally need to rebubble. Um, other things to consider is if there's like an inferior one third of the graph is dislocated. Sometimes those will propagate a little bit faster because generally speaking, if you have, uh, the tamponade will help you up for the superior half of your cornea uh, because the gas bubble obviously floats up and it will give you a more prolonged tamponade. So oftentimes you'll see more inferior dislocations as well. As other, other considerations or other complications with uh, EK, one unique thing is you're introducing an air bubble into the eye compared to PKP. So you're actually, um, you can actually get people block. In DSEC, what will commonly happen, uh, these are pseudophagic patients, like the gas bubble can get behind the, the iris and then push the iris forward and, and cause iris bombay. Uh, in mac, one thing like uh, you generally leave a, a larger air fill and, or larger gas fill, and the gas lasts longer. And if you don't have the gas bubble clear some sort of passageway from the anterior chamber to the posterior chamber, which is usually an inferior peripheral iridotomy, you're gonna get pupillary block and then the pressures can go up from pupillary block. So for our Dmac patients, I generally always put an inferior PI. Um, for DSEC patients, you wanna ensure you don't get pupillary block, but making sure that their pupils dilate past the margin of your air bubble meaning whatever air fill you leave at the end of the case, you want to make sure your, your pupil is wider than that. So then there's passageway of fluid from the posterior chamber to the anterior chamber. One unique complication that's in DSEC that's not in DMAC is you can get epithelial ingrowth with DSEC. I mentioned the wounds are much larger in a DSEC compared to a DMAC. And if you're doing like a push-pull technique and you're manipulating cells at the limbus and you have this larger gaping wound, you could get a migration of ep- ep- epithelial cells inside the eye there's been good reports showing uh, causes of primary graft failure to be um, epithelial growth. And that's something that hasn't been reported with DMACC. Other concerns or complications that have been brought to light over the past decade. Um, one a unique complication, it was something that was identified as a trend in the late 2000s, like 2007 through th- 2010. They noticed that patients that were getting EK were getting more fungal infections than patients with PKP. The hypothesis was th- these tissues, these endothelial transplants need more n- manipulation at the eye bank and also on the bench for the, um, during the surgery. So there's more time for fungus to propagate. Um, there wasn't a statistical significant increase of fungal, uh, fungal infections compared to PKP, but there was a trend towards this. And as a result, most eye banks have added Amphotericin B as a way to com- combat that. So that's one unique potential risk of an EKA compared to PKP. I mentioned earlier uh, the other general risks or general complications with coronal transplants being primary graft failure. So as you can imagine, all that tapping, all that manipulation, you could lose endothelial cells and the graft might not work. And then I mentioned earlier with PKP, there's risk for a graft rejection. It, graft rejection is a little bit different with endothelial transplants because obviously it, the only thing that's really rejecting is the endothelial, like the decimates the endothelial cells. So what you generally see is uh, Usually, multiple KP. Um, you don't usually see like a rejection line like you do in PKPs. And then I mentioned already that the, the rejection rates are really low with DMAC compared to D second PK. So it's generally, I, I haven't really seen any DMAC rejection episodes. Um, so I think that's pretty much everything as far as the complications for endophilic keratoplasty.
1: That was a really comprehensive review. Thank you. Um, so then I guess our final major topic for this episode is what are some of the newer techniques for endothelial dysfunction? I think it's really exciting to go to these conferences and hear about gene therapy and stem cell therapy, but what about some of the um, newer surgical techniques?
2: Yeah, it's it's a great observation. I think that uh, our field, especially corn, is constantly moving forward, trying to use less tissue and be more uh, minimally invasive. And Something along those lines is a technique called DSO, or decimase stripping only. It's also referred to as desmatorexis without endothelial keratoplasty. And this is really reserved for patients with Fuchs. These are just two terms that describe the same exact uh, surgical technique, where essentially you're just removing the disease, decimase membrane that's um, found centrally and allowing healthy peripheral cells from the patient or even cultured endothelial cells to migrate over that central uh, defect where you've taken out that diseased maze membrane. Um, so, DSO and DWEC is something that I haven't actually done myself. So, I talked to my co-fellow, who's faculty member over at Bullseye uh, Hospital, to get the, all the highlights of the procedure. Um, but her highlights were really that, that the clinical criteria for being able to perform a DSO, I'm going to stick with DSO as a term just to make it simple. Um, is to identify a patient with Fuchs that has gutata. It's only centrally located to the, usually a 4.5 or 5 millimeter zone. And they have to have an absolutely clear peripheral endo, uh, end, um, peripherally clear endothelium. So no edema, no peripheral gutata, because you need a healthy population for the cells to migrate from. Um, as far as the surgical technique, You'll use a, usually like a reverse Sinski or some sort of sharp instrument to um, score the decimates centrally. And it's kind of described as doing a kind of like a rexis, but you're doing it on the decimates, uh decimate membrane. And you have to be very con- conscientious of having nice, smooth, continuous uh, edges because you're trying to uh, encourage migration of endothelial cells. So if you have any loose flaps or ridges, those endothelial cells won't make it over to the central corneal and stay edematous. Um, so basically, the surgical te- technique is scoring the middle, making a little flap, you usually use like a reverse utrata or a micrograsping forceps to grab it and wrap it around like you would like a capsulorhexis. Then these patients are usually put on a rock inhibitor. The one that's commonly used is uh, ritacidil. It's available in Japan. Patients can actually order it directly to themselves. Um, it's not FDA-approved, so that's usually a way of circumventing some of the regulatory issues. We have a ROCK inhibitor in the U.S., it's Repressa. Uh, however, the dosing Repressa is uh, once daily. And I'm sure if, for anyone that's prescribed Repressa, it causes a lot of redness and ocular irritation. So once you go up to QID dosing, it really, really drops off in terms of compliance. And if you only do Q day, uh, once a day dosing, it takes forever for the cornea to clear. So oftentimes, people that are doing DSO, they'll order the the drops from Japan.
0: So I think that kind of
2: covers DSO as a whole entity. In summary, for DSO, you need someone that has very limited uh, fuchs just in the central cornea. They need healthy peripheral cells. Uh, It needs to be someone that's willing to wait about a month for the cornea to clear. But if they go with this route, they don't have to deal with all the consequences of having an endothelial transplant inside their eye.
1: So... Let's say that our patient actually had visually significant fuchs, but with a healthy peripheral cornea, which surgery do you think that you would recommend for them? I know that you mm. don't do DSO out in Hawaii. So just speaking towards like what you would do in your clinical practice.
2: For her, I actually, I the only reason I haven't done it, I haven't come across a patient like this in the scenario. Yeah, like, the
1: perfect patient. <laughs> like, you know, I,
2: would, I would for sure offer her DSO. Um, yeah. I spoke with uh, Zaba, she's at Wills, and she said that only about 5% of her patients qualify for DSO. And I always like, I'm, I'm literally on an island here in Hawaii, and also I feel like in prior practice, uh, you could do as much as you can going to conferences and reading journals, but it's nice to touch base with people that are in academics to see where you stand in terms of keeping up with your skills. And she said about 50% of the faculty uh, do DSO. So I think we're also in a transition point. And uh, if we identify more patients that have a very similar clinical scenario as this patient, I think uh, it would be very appropriate to offer DSO for her. Um, I would actually make the argument for DSO for this patient saying that, you know, if we don't transplant any tissue, you don't have to worry about rejection. Another huge benefit is you don't have to use drops forever. Um, And steroid drops have complications such as increased risk of, you know, elevated intraocular pressure and steroid response glaucoma. So for this patient, I don't see any downside of uh, of offering DSO. It would be really my recommendation. I would make it clear to her that the visual rehabilitation will be longer. It will take, you know, four or six weeks for it to clear. Uh, With my DMEK patients, if it's a Fuchs patient, once the the air bubble, once the gas bubble is gone, they're usually seeing well after that uh, first week. Um, But again, I think that small difference in timing is not worth the long-term burden of having a transplant in the eye. So I would much... uh, prefer doing a DSO if I was the patient, and that's why I would offer the, uh, that's why I, I would offer this patient as well.
1: Great. May we hope that we have patients that have just perfect peripheral endothelial cells, but obviously that's not what we generally see in clinical practice. So let's summarize what we learned. Corneal transplantation can involve the entire cornea and is called penetrating keratoplasty or you can have partial thickness transplants such as DSEC or DMEC. PKs or penetrating keratoplasties are more common in eyes with diseases like keratoconus or pathology that involves both the endothelium and the stroma or in eyes with very complex anterior chamber pathology, whereas EKs or endothelial keratoplasty are more common in eyes with endothelial dysfunction, such as in patients with Fuchs endothelial dystrophy or in pseudophagic bolus keratopathy. Both PKs and EKs can undergo primary graft failure and graft rejection. Now, graft rejection is actually more common in PKs, and the most severe form of graft rejection or endothelial rejection generally presents with precipitants on the corneal endothelium, which we call the K line. And that is, again, more common, much more common in PKs than in EKs. And then finally, we have newer surgical techniques, such as DSO, that offer the chance of removing the abnormal endothelium in eyes with healthy peripheral endothelial cells, and they avoid the use of donor tissue and rejection. However, like we've been talking about, these are reserved for eyes with very mild to moderate disease, and even in those cases, it takes much longer for those patients to have visual recovery than in patients that had a DMEC. So Dr. Choi, before we end the episode, I ask all of my patients, if you could have dinner with one person from any time or place in the history of humanity, who would it be?
2: I thought about this question listening into it on other podcasts. And uh, I think in the past, I probably would have said someone like Michael Jordan or some famous person, but I think it's kind of a reflection of me getting older. My answer would be actually my uh, maternal grandmother. She's actually uh, my mom's mom. And the reason, I know it sounds like a strange answer, but I guess the reason being is uh, she passed away before I was old enough to have any real memories. She passed away when I was like around two years old. And by all accounts, she was a really amazing woman and real humanitarian. Uh, she was around my age that I am now through the Korean War, and she actually ran an orphanage after the Korean War and like hosted about 80 100 kids annually um, to help offset the burn of like the hundred thousand orphans that, uh, the 100,000 orphans after the Korean War. And she just sounded like a really... Great leader and someone that I could learn a lot and gain a lot of wisdom. So I think my young person answer would be like some celebrity where we could have a, a lot of selfies and have a you know like be a real memory in that way. But I think my mature matured answer is trying to dig through dig through my lineage and learn a little bit more from my past. So
1: I think that's a really beautiful answer, and I'm sure that you would have just the best food and the best dinner if you were with your grandmother. So Dr. Choi, thank you so much for joining me today.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
1: And thank you to our listeners. Hope to see you next time on The Pupil Pod.